Good afternoon, you're listening to KLX. I'm Franklin and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. Coming up on today's show, polymers, networks, and space. Also joining us is Mr. Lester Brown to talk about sustainable development. So stay tuned for all of this here on the Berkeley Rock Science Show. Back to Break the Grocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Terry Ann. And I am Vikram Kulkarni. All right, well, welcome back to the show. How's everybody doing? How's, um, how's everything going? Um, I just finished a project, so I guess Yay. it's going pretty good. Okay. Moving on to something new. High five. Yes. Woo. All right, so uh, what's new in the world of science this week? Oh, a lot. A lot's going on. So what's the most exciting thing that's going on? Well, all right, I don't know if this is most exciting, but I was just reading uh, some stuff online and in magazines and whatnot. And um, there's this professor, Masahiro Iri. Um, he's at Japan's Kyushu University. And you discover these polymers where if you shine ultraviolet light onto them, they'll change shape. Like they'll either shrink, they'll bend, or they'll go from a rectangular shape to a parallelogram-like shape. Mm-hmm. So when you shine UV light on them... Um, they'll, you know, undergo these changes. And then when you shine visible light on the deformed polymer, then they'll revert back to their original shape. So wow. it's pretty cool, yeah. Wow. Are these sort of like the similar to the molecules they find in the eyes, the rhodopsins? That sort you know, of I don't know. I don't know very much about rhodopsin. Huh. But, but it's like this photo uh, mechanical effect that you see, Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. They're really excited because then they could uh, use this to fabricate microscale Devices, I suppose. So, like you know, an on and off switch, like sort of like yeah. a transistor at yeah. the molecular right. level. Or they could, I think they discovered these uh, cylindrical rods where you shine UV light on them and they bend. Okay. And then I think they were able to use them as some sort of uh, light activated slingshot. I think they like wow. able to launch gold particles. Uh huh. Uh, to perform something. <laughs> That's right. Watch out. Those gold particles are coming out. I know. Out. It's pretty cool. And um, the change uh, happens on, like, the time scale of a microsecond. A so microsecond. Okay. Micro- a few microseconds, right. maybe. But it's pretty darn fast. Yeah, it's pretty cool. That's very cool. Yeah, they uh, basically it happens because um, it's through something called electrocyclic reactions. And so you have this polymer where it's, you know, ginormous. And um, in the center, you have this ring, and normally it's an open ring, so it's not right. completely closed. Mm-hmm. And then when you shine light, you know, in ultraviolet light, uh-huh. it causes the ring to close up, and so you can imagine that conformation will change. Okay, so it must be sort of like some sort of pi-pi reaction with the bonds yeah, maybe. that yeah. rearranges itself. And yeah, then, uh, yeah. Very so cool. it's pretty cool, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. yeah. So are, are, there, are there any uh, obvious... Applications, I guess there is some, uh, you know, like a light detecting uh, relays or applications like that. But have they talked of any particular applications? Uh, not that I know of, but I mean, I can imagine this can be used for nano stuff 
electronic devices, so computer chips, like, I can imagine. Diodes, transistors, kind of equivalents that you can yeah, come up with. Yeah, exactly. Right. right. Very good. So if anyone wants to find out more about these fancy polymers? Um, well, they can look up Masahiro Iri, I-R-I-E. Okay. And, yeah. Cool. Very cool. So, guys, have you heard about the strength of weak ties? Weak ties? Weak ties. What do you mean by weak ties? So, for example, um, you know, this is one of the ways sociologists have characterized how people move about in a social network. For example, to find a job is that we have a, uh, a friend of a friend who uh, uh, may have a job opening. So you sort of use this network of sort of links to find your job. Oh, and so like weak ties as in acquaintances. Like, yeah. oh yeah, I sort of know this person right. who works here. Right, right. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, like, like formalizing what people do on the, uh, on the electronic networks or in... Uh, in, in industrial industry networks, is that what you're saying, or am I losing? It could be those, or in, more, in a more general sense, of society at large. But um, you know, social authors have been curious to know what, how these ties affect an entire structure, uh, you know, within an industry, within a whole community, within cities, uh, you know, whatever group of people you want to uh, look at. And what some scientists uh, at Oxford have found out is that. Uh, these weak ties are the actual critical ones to maintaining the overall structure of your group. Oh, interesting. So, for example, um, you know, rather than, let's say, you know, uh, we hang out all the time when we're strong ties, let's say that tie gets cut off uh, for whatever reason, overall it's not going to have a huge effect on society. <laughs> oh my right. god, that's, that's so funny. We have a strong tie, Frank. <laughs> but let's say, you know, all the little contacts between, say, the U.S. and India disappear, then the, the whole network or structure would collapse and would have something totally different. So basically, friends of a friend of a friend of a friend uh-huh. is much stronger than best friends. Yes, uh, very to the overall uh, structure of the society. I see. It's very, uh, <laughs> and, it's very uh, anti-building <laughs> strong relationships with people. And apparently, the the way they were able to conduct this research was they look at the phone records. They have all these records of you know people who use cell phones, and they sort of do little experiments to see what would happen if certain net or linkages got cut off. Uh-huh. And it looks like when you cut off the really strong ones, the overall effect is nothing. Whereas you cut off all the little small ones, then what do they mean by overall effect? Like, how do they measure the effect it has on society? You know, I actually don't quite understand, but it must be some sort of mathematical uh, way to characterize the <laughs> the, the network's, uh, how do you call it, fluidity or structure. Interesting. Huh. And so, you know, this is like one of the uh, fascinating fields in sociology is how entire social structures build and what, what are the underlying factors. And, you know, I guess for a long time they've thought that these weak linkages were more important than the direct uh, strong linkages. So but sort don't of weak that. linkages come from strong linkages? Uh, they're, they're more important than the strong linkages. I see. Okay. So, so it's like a, they basically did like sensitivity analysis and basically Something figured like out that. some sort of, based on what they're taught, some sort of effect parameter that they, yeah. uh, you know, just created. And this was carried out by Juca Pecconella at Oxford University. Cool. Okay. 
So guys, has anybody checked into Space News lately? Space News. Uh well, I was planning my next vacation out there. <laughs> uh well, you can try for any really uh, any rich. good places? Uh you're really rich. There are some people flying you out there, but Well, Stephen Hawking is going to go there, right? <laughs> oh yeah, he had his little that. weightless excursion. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually a pretty cool picture of him, you know, him floating with an apple like next to him. Oh, really? I didn't see any pictures. Okay, just, and uh, they're saying some people are saying that that was sort of it. like uh, analogy to Salvador Dali's paintings of sort of people like floating. <laughs> Interesting. Oh, wow. <laughs> Stephen yeah. Hawking and Salvador Dali. How polar that, that, opposite can you be? That's going <laughs> far, far away. But anyways, yeah. Well, I, I'm not, I wasn't going on any space. Uh, going to talk about any space flights. But apparently, the newest news in uh, space is uh, that astro- astronomers have discovered uh, an Earth-like planet uh, in constellation Libra, uh, which is 20 light years away from us. Okay, and so we have a second chance then, huh? We uh, hopefully have a second chance. Uh, it's <laughs> or we back can up, find back up. our lost brothers. <laughs> That's right. Uh, well, we can hope or maybe not considering how much we fight with brothers. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, but anyways, about this planet, it is five times the size of the Earth. But the key there is that the surface temperature of this planet is in a range of 32 to 104 degrees Fahrenheit. Hey, which is almost very balmy. Close. Yeah. Yeah, that's really very cool. Close to the Earth's uh, range there. So just inject a little oxygen, uh, a couple plants, and uh, you're ready to go, right? We don't know so much about it yet, but that's the first indication why people are becoming so excited about it. And uh, the, the difference about it, I guess, is that it's much larger than the Earth. It's five times the Earth's size, mm-hmm. but also that it's orbiting around a red dwarf star. Okay. Uh, called, oh, so I see. Uh, called Gliese 581. And uh, I guess uh, that means the red dwarf star is is a star that gives out much lesser energy than our sun, for example. Oh, I see. Uh, basically gives out, you know, red and in the red spectrum. So they're lower, mm-hmm. uh, lower energy right. uh, I wonder, Wait, the sun gives off energy... Invisible. Invisible. Invisible and the ultraviolets as well. Right? Yeah. Which oh, I yeah, the higher end. In the higher yeah. end. Uh, higher range. All right. Right. So, uh, so the thing is, uh, and the other thing is, this uh, particular planet is uh, much closer to the sun. Mm-hmm. It is fourteen times closer to its sun than we are to our sun. Okay, but it's okay uh, because the uh, dwarf star gives us the, less yeah. energy. So the, the, yeah, the energy might is be less. comparable. Yeah, right. that, that's why you get into that range because the energy is less, but the distance mm-hmm. is uh, is also less. So then right. you get into that temperature range. Right. And, Which uh, is probably why it's 32 to yeah, 104, not it, like 500 to 1,000. And so apparently the way they were able to detect this uh, is that uh, it was detected in Chile using a spectrograph. And uh, the way they do this is uh, they were able to detect the pull of an unseen exoplanet. Uh, on, on the star itself. Okay. So, so the exoplanet would be... Uh, would be this particular planet uh, that we discovered. Extra uh, so solar or something. Extra right. solar planet. And so, so what it is, is uh, it, it causes, because the planet actually uh, revolves. revolves around the sun, mm-hmm. it causes a wobble on the star. Oh, yeah, yeah it's a gravitational effect. Yeah. Right. yeah. Right. And so uh, they detect that effect, and based on that, they are able to deduce... That's actually pretty amazing. Of, I mean, is, the sensitivity is. of that spectrograph, because yeah. it's 20... Yeah light years away uh-huh. <laughs> and I can't yeah. imagine the wobble being you know miles right <laughs> right uh, it's, yeah, so, I'm sure they have like a relative that's just, positioning that's amazing effect. yeah uh, 
these things are very accurate these days, I guess. I, I, oh, yeah, I mean, I think for a lot of the black holes, because, you know, you can't really see them. Like, they're, they're sort of based on the wobbles. The that's true, yeah. It, so, I mean, it's similar. That's effect. just amazing. All right. So, uh, so anyway, so uh, the hope anyways is that liquid, uh, you know, water might actually exist on this planet because of the temperature. Right. But I think that's how far, I don't think people have actually detected water yet. Yeah, mm-hmm. I haven't heard anything. Anything about that, so. I'm sure if they did, we would have been yeah. <laughs> notified <laughs> right, right. day in, I mean, day I think out. They're not even, I mean, they're also still, this is all an indirect deduction anyways, right? So I'm right. sure the administration is very interested. <laughs> that's right. That's <laughs> Uh, for its next colony, yeah. Yeah, apparently uh, it's all over on uh, CNN.com and a lot of uh, news websites. I think also on space.com you can see it. Or just Google, uh, you know, Earth-like planet and constellation Libra, and you should be able to find it. Thanks a lot, Terry and uh, Vikram. And that's our weekly roundup of current developments in the world of science and technology. to the Berkeley Rock Science Show. Uh, today we have a very special guest, uh, Mr. Lester Brown from the Earth Policy Institute in Washington, D.C., and he's going to tell us a little bit about uh, his new book, Plan B 2.0. Mr. Brown is a renowned figure in the environment uh, in sustainability. He has won numerous awards, including the MacArthur Prize. Uh, Mr. Brown, thank you so much for joining us here today. My pleasure. So I noticed your book was not titled Plan C, and so this probably means that you have hope for Plan B. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about Plan B? <laughs> Reminds me we started talking about Plan B 2.0 to replace the original Plan B. Uh-huh. Our editor came in with a cartoon, and it was a staff member handing the CEO a document, and, and, and the, the document says Plan Z. And, <laughs> and the CEO says to the staff person, and what if this one doesn't work? <laughs> so um, what uh, Plan B 2.0 is, is an update of the original Plan B, taking into account uh, advances in technologies, new trends, um, new problems uh, um, developing and so forth. And right now I'm working on Plan B 3.0, um, which, uh, which if all goes well, will be coming out in, um, in January of this coming year. Okay, great. 
you know, in, in terms of your perspectives, how has it changed since the first uh, edition of Plan B? Are you more optimistic? I don't know if I'm more or less optimistic. Um, I think one has to be an optimist by nature to work on these issues. Otherwise, you would probably give up and uh, mm -hmm. um, and uh, head for the hills. Um, the thing that I find particularly interesting now or exciting is, is the rate at which things are beginning to happen. I mean, clearly in this country, we are seeing a... I think we're moving towards some sort of a, a social or political tipping point on the climate issue. And I base that on a number of things. One, uh, more than 400 mayors have now signed on to the Kyoto Protocol, for example, committed their cities to meeting those goals. And these include the largest cities in the country, Los Angeles, Chicago, New York. They include um, Republicans and Democrats. This is a broad-based bipartisan uh, effort. Um, and we're seeing a lot of strong initiatives at the state level. I mean, clearly here in California, Governor Schwarzenegger is pushing California out in front in many ways. Um, but there are exciting things happening in other states, too. The uh, um, renewable fuel standards, for example, uh, um, uh, have uh, been adopted and raised in a, in a number of states just in the last few months. Uh, Congress now appears to be ready to move ahead in this area. Uh, some of the most exciting things, uh, one of the most exciting things is happening in Texas. I mean, everyone's looking at California, but uh, in Texas, Governor Rick Perry, also a Republican, um, has um, committed um, to developing a huge uh, complex of wind farms. Mm -hmm. he's, he's mobilized, brought together in a coalition, eight of the leading wind farm development companies in in, in the United States, along with a couple of companies to build transmission lines, and they're planning a 7,000-megawatt uh, wind farm cluster. Um, just to put that in perspective, the average coal-fired power plant in this country is about 300 megawatts. Right. We're talking about 7,000 megawatts of, of wind energy, and that, that will be enough to satisfy the residential needs of, of more than 5 million Texans. Um, and, and it's also interesting because Texas, which for the last century has been our leading oil-producing state, mm -hmm. is already our leading wind-producing state, having mm -hmm. overtaken California in the last year or so. And, and that's before this huge wind farm. A 7,000-megawatt wind farm is not only big for renewable energy, it's big, period. Um, it's, it's just huge. What it represents is, for the first time, we're beginning to see not just marginal or incremental changes or increases in renewable energy, but quantum jumps. And, and this, I think, is the good news. It reminds me a bit of, of an interview that Elizabeth Colbert was doing with uh, Amory Lovins when she was um, working on that profile that she did of Amory. And she had a question for Amy, Amory about, you know, thinking outside the box. Amory said, there is no box. And, and that's the mindset I think we now need if we're going to um, get on top of or get ahead of, uh, of, of, of climate change and get things under control. So speaking of Amory Lovins and um, uh, technology innovations, um, he touts this so-called um, tunneling curve in terms of the price of uh, innovation. So at some point, if, if you have uh, a quantum leap in innovation, 
you immediately get savings right off the bat. Do you see such trends, not just in energy, but also, say, in water or in uh, ecological sustainability? Yeah, I, I see them more in energy, maybe because I've been focusing more there. But, but uh, I think he's right. We could see it in a lot of different areas, like raising water productivity or water efficiency, for example. Um, one of the most exciting things that uh, I think um, we're going to see happening soon is the, is the banning of, of the old-fashioned incandescent light bulbs. Mm -hmm. Australia is the first country to commit itself to, uh, to replace uh, incandescent light bulbs with compact fluorescence, and, and to do it quickly by 2009 or 2010. Um, and then we have here in California the, uh, the legislation introduced, which is called the uh, how many legislatures, how many legislators does it take to screw in a light bulb act? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, someone has a sense of humor, but it's a serious initiative to in California um, uh, begin the uh, systematic uh, replacement of old-fashioned incandescent light bulbs with compact fluorescence. And the, the exciting thing about this is that the, when, you, when you buy the more costly compact fluorescents um, and install them, um, you, you more than get your money back from electricity savings, and it comes quickly. If you want to put it in rates of return, the rate of return on investing in, um, in incandescent light bulbs is something like 30% a year. Mm -hmm which is not a bad rate of return. Um, and, and so this is one of the most, one of the best investments you can find. Um, and, and I think we're going to see this move quickly. I mean, we're already seeing Walmart with its campaign, you know, to have a, sell 100 million compact fluorescents next year. Um, Philips, maybe the largest manufacturer of light bulbs in the, in the world, based in, in the Netherlands, is, has announced it's going to phase out entirely the, the manufacture of incandescents. I think it's by 2016. I see. So we've been talking a little bit about technology, but on a larger scale, there's issues with um, urbanization. And you know, some people have called for uh, um, a revamped um, urban structure where you know, cities or municipalities can support themselves. Uh, not just with their energy, but also with their food and uh, also their um, basic resources. Do you foresee such urban designs appearing in the future? We're beginning to move in that uh, direction. Um, and there is the initiative here on campus working with uh, um, Chinese um, uh, um, urban developers. And, and China is, 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 a, is a good place to work because they're building a lot of new cities starting from scratch, so you right. can incorporate these things. Um, but but clearly, we're beginning to see, I mean, the fact that 400 mayors in, in the U.S. have signed up for the Kyoto Protocol means they're beginning to rethink things. And um, and, and the, the, the relationship between urban design and and, and, and the, the resources required in a city, whether it's water or energy or food or raw materials, are, are all related. And I think we're, we're clearly going to see a lot of rethinking in this area. And exactly what form it will take remains to be seen, because there's a lot of opportunity for innovating at the local level that may be unique to the local level, responding to the circumstances. Mm -hmm. 
Um, when you look at like the broad range of cultures and practices of how to use resources um, you know, throughout history, are there any inspiring examples and are there any practices that we should revisit at least to reincorporate into our uh, modern lifestyle? As, as I look around the world, I, I see a lot of exciting things uh, happening. And we're beginning to see, um, um, we're beginning to get glimpses of what I call the, the new economy beginning mm -hmm. to emerge. I mean, we know that the, the old economy, the fossil fuel-based, automobile-centered, throwaway economy is, is not going to work um, uh, for much longer, simply because of the resources it requires. So the challenge for us is to build a new economy, one that's powered largely by renewable sources of energy that um, has a much more diversified transport system and that reuses and recycles everything. Mm -hmm. um, so as we look around the world, we can see this economy emerging. We, um, we, we see it in the wind farms of Western Europe where 40 million people now get their residential electricity from, from wind turbines. Um, we see it in the solar rooftops of, of, of uh, Japan. Um, we see it in Iceland, where 91% of all homes are now heated with geothermal energy. They virtually eliminated the need for imported oil for heating purposes. <clears throat> we see it in the fast-growing fleet of hybrid cars in the United States. Uh, we see it in the rooftop solar water heaters in China, um, where uh, by the end of this year there may be 40 million homes with um, with solar um, heaters on on water heaters on the roof providing hot water, so people for the first time in their lives many of them can take showers. And and this is interesting because this technology is leapfrogging into into the countryside, into rural areas, rural villages that are that are not connected to the grid. Um, so, so there are a lot of things happening like this that, that I find uh, um, very exciting. In terms of countries, probably the countries that are the best models now uh, would be Sweden um, and, 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 to, and, and, and Germany in, in terms of restructuring their energy economies. Great. Uh, I guess we're running a, a little bit out of time here. Uh, are there any last words you'd like to add about yourself or the uh, Earth Policy Institute? When people ask me, what can I do, you know, they expect me to say, you know, recycle your newspapers and turn off the lights when you leave the room. And these, these are important things, but we've reached a point now where we have to work for systemic change. We've got to change the system. Mm -hmm. And the key to that is to get the market to tell the truth. And we can do that by calculating the indirect costs of burning a gallon of gasoline or a ton of coal or what have you, and incorporating those costs into the, um, uh, into the price of the product by restructuring the tax system. That is, lower income taxes and, and raise carbon taxes on you know, the use of gasoline and burning coal and so forth. So, so we know how to do it now. It's just a matter of getting our act together. And, and when we look at the future, we're not talking about saving the planet. We're talking about saving our civilization. Mm -hmm. This is what's at stake now. We all have a stake in, 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 in the success of that effort, and it means we all have to become politically active, support candidates who are, who are uh, engaging these issues, let, let our elected representatives at the local and the national level know what we want them to do about these things. 
Great. Mr. Bell, it's been very inspiring. Uh, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. And we were just talking to Mr. Lester Brown on sustainable development. To find out about, more about his work, you can check out his website at www.earth-policy.org. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Rocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. You can also see us on the web at www.grox.net. I'm Frank Ling, and have a great afternoon.